I want to begin this morning by once again expressing appreciation to all of you for allowing Nancy and I to be a part of a Holy Land experience, something quite honestly we never thought would fit into our schedules. We really didn't even put it on our our radar screen as something that could possibly happen, and yet uh, all these things fell into place um, providentially to enable us to be able to go. And we experienced far too much to be able to share completely this morning with you. Uh, so I'm not even going to try to do that. It is was very much like drinking, uh, trying to get a, a drink of water out of a fire hose. I mean, it was just so much, so fast. At the end of each day, as I tried to write down the things that happened during the day, I, I turned to Nancy and go, where did we go? What did we do? It, it just all kind of washed together. It was it's such a, a big experience. Uh, but as I said earlier, you really are not going to be able to open the pages of Scripture and read it in the same way that you ever read it before. And I know that Ricky Millette and Nancy and I could agree with that old hymn, uh, you know, I, I walked today where Jesus walked and felt his presence there. Everywhere we went, you could just, this, this was a place where it, it was just, it just completely, it wasn't just the dirt or the water or the rocks. There was significance there that was beyond anything that, that uh, we could imagine. And secondly, uh, is Lim here? Where's Lim? Is Lim here this morning? I'm going to leave him out then. Lim said something before we left that uh, I wouldn't preach what I'd planned to preach, and he was right. So if you see him, you can tell him he was right. Uh, but as we start this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, I just pray that your word it will be what is supreme in our hearts and in our minds and our lives, that we will hear from you and that having heard from you, that we will respond in a way that would bring glory to you, good to you, and Lord, that would bring good to others. We want our lives to be a testimony that we have indeed been redeemed by the blood of the lamb, that we are no longer the person we used to be. And yet, Lord, even though we're someone new now, we're not yet what we will be. And we look forward to that day when you bring it all together, right every wrong, and place us where you desire us to be, in your presence forever. Now, Lord, as you open up your word to us, speak. We're listening. We want to hear, and we want to respond. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I can now say that I have been uh, on a hillside outside of Bethlehem seeing sheep grazing on the hill with a shepherd sitting on a rock keeping watch over them. I can now say that that I've been to the place where most people believe uh, that that was the birthplace of Jesus. I've been in on the Mount of Olives overlooking the city of Jerusalem, the path that Jesus would have taken in order to enter Jerusalem on his triumphal entry. I've been in the room that most people believe was the upper room where he had his last supper with his disciples. I've been in that garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prayed prior to his arrest and crucifixion. And I've seen trees that were there at the same time he was in that garden. 2,000-year-old trees still growing. 
I've been in the courtyard of Caiaphas, the place where Jesus was put on that mock trial. And possibly even in that underground cave where he would have been kept. I've been to the place where where most believe was the site of his crucifixion. And then just a few, literally just a few yards away to the place where he was buried and rose again. I never thought I'd be in these places. They were significant in many ways. Having the opportunity to serve the Lord's Supper there at the garden tomb was something that uh, just kind of caught me by surprise when, when Dr., Dr. White, our, the executive director of Georgia Baptist Convention, asked me if I'd be willing to serve the Lord's Supper. It's like, you know, throwing a piece of raw meat to a dog. Absolutely. <laughs> I wasn't turning that down. And as I sat there and thought of all the significant things that, that took place, uh, I really want to use one of those events as kind of a, a launching pad to talk a little bit about what God's Word says here and to give us a better understanding of who Jesus is. And that was uh, when we were on, actually on the Sea of Galilee. Our, in Tiberias, our hotel room actually overlooked the Sea of Galilee. This is actually a picture out of the balcony. Um, this is early uh, in the morning. Uh, I went out. Um, sleep was kind of erratic to get started with. So I went on the balcony. I actually took this picture. As you can see, the skies are, are partly cloudy anyway. And uh, this, this was the view. Um, you stand there and you go, is this even real? <laughs> but, th- but this is it. Th- this is the Sea of Galilee. This was the area. Uh, now, this was Tiberias itself. But this was the area around the Sea of Galilee in which Jesus did uh, uh, much of his ministry. A few hours after taking this picture, uh, we boarded some boats uh, with 250 of my closest friends, and we sailed out onto the Sea of Galilee. Some of you have been out there, you kind of know. It's just just an awesome thing. And I know there's been a lot of water through there. That's not the exact same water that Jesus was on, okay? I mean, it's changed out a few times since then. But to actually be out on a boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee where Jesus was, was an awe-inspiring thing. And we pulled off, we, there were three boats we pulled together. These are very big boats, tied together. And we actually had a worship service out on the Sea of Galilee. Uh, for me, that was kind of the springboard to a tremendous week to be able to sing and to worship there on the Sea of Galilee. After we finished the worship service, we untied the boats and we began to, to head towards uh, the area of Capernaum up in the northwestern part of the, on the Sea of Galilee. And it was then I felt the first drop of rain. Up to that point, the seas were very, very calm, partly cloudy, nice temperature. I felt the first drop of rain, and the wind started blowing. And very, very quickly, things changed. Uh, The rain started coming down really, really heavy. The wind started really, really blowing. And the water got a little choppy. It wasn't bad. But it was just this quick storm that, that blew up. I mean, we saw the clouds, we, we knew it was potential, but all of a sudden we went from what was really, really nice worship service on the water to all kind of hovering together, trying to stay dry in the wind and the rain on the Sea of Galilee. With that in mind, 
I'd like you to turn in your Bibles, open your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 8. Because here's another instance of a little bit of a storm that happened on the Sea of Galilee. I'd like us to look at that together this morning. Matthew chapter 8, we're going to look together at verses 23 to 27. Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 to 27. Then he, that is Jesus, got into the boat, and his disciples followed him. Without warning, a furious storm came upon the lake, so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. He replied, you have little faith. Why are you so afraid? And then he got up and he rebuked the wind and the waves and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and they asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. You know, when we read this story, we almost inevitably jump to the conclusion, the application that Jesus calms the storms of life. And you know, there's some truth to that. But that's not what this passage is trying to teach us. That's not what God would have us to draw out of this passage. That every storm that comes up in life, Jesus is going to calm that storm. So let's take a closer look. Jesus was in Capernaum. He had been preaching and teaching. The crowds, they kept coming. And they kept coming. And they kept going. It tells us that the crowds grew very large. And so Jesus got into a boat and his disciples got in with him and, and they began to sail. Mark says that they, he said, Jesus says to him, let's go over to the, to the other side. Okay. Now here's a, here's a map. Um, this is not a picture I took. This is actually just something I ripped off from the internet. Uh, but I did put the arrow on there to show you probably the direction that they're taking place. They're in Capernaum, which is up in the, the northwestern corner of the Sea of Galilee. And they're going to uh, the other side. Now, the other side for them would not necessarily be directly across. The other side for them is going to be the side that's the non-Jewish side, okay? That would be what, what you're looking up there on your right-hand side. That's the non-Jewish side. That's the Decapolis uh, cities, uh, the, the Gadarenes there, the Gesserines. You know, all up in that, that area. That's the area when he's saying, let's go to the other side. That's where he wanted them to go. And so they're traversing a minimum of seven miles across this water uh, in order to get there. The Sea of Galilee is a little over eight miles wide. Um, it is uh, 13 miles north to south. Uh, if the disciples are, are going from the northwestern corner to somewhere on the eastern side... Uh, then they're probably traveling maybe seven miles across water that's 140 or so feet deep in places. And the disciples had to traverse this in a fishing boat. Now, don't think about your fishing boat, okay? They've actually found, buried in the mud up near Capernaum, they found a boat from the time of Jesus. Now, they're not saying this is Jesus' boat, okay? They're not saying this belonged to Peter, this is a boat like the boats that were common in that time. And so you've kind of got a, an image of, of what that boat might lo- have looked like. 
it was designed to carry maybe five fishermen at a time. And they would be using nets, not rod and reel like you might be thinking about fishing. They'd be fishing with nets. It was a kind of a shallow boat because the, all the, you know, they needed room to stand and move around. But also that's where the haul, that's where the catch would go. They wouldn't put them in an ice chest. They'd just dump them in the bottom of the boat and sail back. Okay, this is, this is the kind of boat they'd be in. Primarily used for fishing, but sometimes it was used to ferry passengers from one point to another, which is precisely what's taking place here. Maybe hold 15 people. That'd be a pretty good full boat. Right now we've got 13 in there. We've got 13 grown men in a shallow boat, uh, not too big, and on calm seas wouldn't be a problem. Mark tells us it was in the evening when they got in the boat. And they pushed off from shore and they set off for the other side. And as they went, a storm blew in. Now, the geography of the area is ideally suited for storms to blow in. Um, The uh, Sea of Galilee is in the Jordan Valley Rift. And again, another picture I ripped off from the Internet. But you can see uh, you've got one in Mount Hermon, excuse me, Mount Hermon, 9,000 feet above sea level. On the other end, the Dead Sea it's about 1,250 feet below sea level. So this is a huge drop-off in a short span of space. And the hot air would be rising from, would be coming up from the lower area towards the Dead Sea, and you've got the Arabian Peninsula and all that down there. You've got that hot air. You've got cold air coming down from Mount Hermon. This creates the place for a perfect storm that could blow up at any time. Similar to what happened to us, But I'm telling you, we just got a small little inkling of it, just enough to know that it could happen. We got to see it. They had a real storm. The word that is used is it was a furious storm. Now, we know what furious is, guys, don't we? Furious is really agitated, really angry, and it is is apparent. And this is what's taking place. As a matter of fact, this word for storm Uh, is the word seismos in Greece. It's the same word that's used for earthquake. So this is not just a gentle spring shower. This is a rip-roaring storm that is, you know, with a boat filled with 13 grown men, waves washing over it, water filling the boat faster than they can get it out of the boat, faster than they can bail it out. So sinking for them was a distinct possibility. Now, what did we read in the story? Where is Jesus all this time? Is he, is he bailing with the rest of them, trying to get the water out of the boat? Where was he? He was asleep. Jesus was asleep in the stern of the boat, in the back of the boat. If you read the accounts in Matthew and Mark and Luke, you see that Jesus had been teaching, crowds had been coming. Jesus, we see the humanity of Jesus here. He was exhausted. He was exhausted. And he was asleep in the boat. And you look at that and you go, well, how is it possible for somebody to be asleep with all that violent storm going on? How is that even possible? Well, I got a little inkling on the flight back. Coming back, flying back from Paris, back to Atlanta. We were on a, we were on a big plane. Okay, this was not just a little puddle jumper. This was a, this was a big plane. We were flying back on 747. And so we're flying back, and I'm sitting there, and Nancy's sitting back with me, and we've got a bunch of folks in there with us. Many of some of them we knew now because we've been with them on the trip. Others we didn't know. And we're flying back, 
And guess what? We're exhausted. We're absolutely exhausted. Now, I don't sleep well on a plane, so I ended up watching like three movies, reading a book. I mean, I, I just had a lot of time on my hands where nothing else was going on. But So we're flying. But a lot of people around me are asleep. They got the little mask things on. That's when you want to get the camera out and take a picture of them. They got the mask thing on. They got the earpieces in. And they're just snoozing to beat the band. We hit some turbulence. And this was pretty disturbing turbulence. Because I'm sitting there and I feel a hand on me. And Nancy, it's Nancy. She's, she's got a hold of my arm. And I have to admit, you know, I'm a guy, so I've got to act like I'm kind of macho. So I'm sitting there. I'm, man, I'm breathing. Just calm, calm breathing. Because this thing is really shaking. I mean, it is worse than going over a washboard road at 60 miles an hour. It, this is really bad shaking. And I'm looking around. There are people still sleeping. I'm going, don't you understand? We're going down. I wasn't going to say that to Nancy, but we're going down and you're asleep. And it dawned on me, that's exactly what happened here in this boat. The disciples were panicking. They were bailing. They're going, Matthew, we're going to die. We're going to die. Jesus, Jesus is asleep. The disciples, they woke him up and they said, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. I mean, they were done. I mean, they really had this thing figured. We're, we're sinking, okay? We're sinking out here. It's 140 feet deep. We're sinking. Mark adds, teacher, don't you care if we drown? So, I mean, they're, they're, they're getting on Jesus about this sleeping thing in the back of the boat while they're about to go down. Now, when they set off from Capernaum, they actually felt pretty good about the trip. Jesus may have gone and settled down and gone to sleep, but that was okay. Because they had some really experienced fishermen with them. Peter, Andrew, James, and John. That's what they did for a living. These guys knew how to handle a boat. They'd been in a storm before. This is no big deal for them. Everything was in control. They had this. Until they looked over at Peter and he was white as a sheet. And they realize, you know what? We're not in control after all. This storm is in control. And Jesus is asleep. And so their, their cry to him, listen, let me tell you, this is, this is the most heartfelt cry of a person who believes it's it. This is it. Lord, save us. Sometimes that's the only prayer you can pray. Lord, save us. I don't see any hope. I don't see any way out. I don't see any light at the end of the tunnel. I don't see anything here that's good at all. Lord, save me. Lord, save us. And you know what? That's not a bad prayer. Sometimes it's the most honest prayer we ever pray. Oftentimes we try to, we try to kind of soften it with God. We we, we go to God and, we, and we, we pray these prayers and we're using words and we don't necessarily really mean them, but we feel like, you know, we got to pray like this in order to get God to hear me. I've got to get God's ear somehow, so, so let me go this way. But I want to tell you something. If you want to know what praying is like, go read the Psalms. You read some unvarnished prayers in the Psalms. 
all the paint, all the varnish stripped off down to the bare wood of the soul. David has no problem going and saying, God, would you kill all these people that are in my enemies? He has no problem saying that. Now, we would go, oh, God, you can't pray like that. Well, David, don't, don't, don't say that. But let me tell you something. When we're honest with God in our praying, that's when God can begin to do something in our lives. When we sugarcoat our prayers, paint them up, make them real pretty, they're not real. If you've got junk in a closet... The only way to deal with the junk in the closet is not to paint the doors of the closet. It's to open it up and let's get the junk out. We need to be honest with God in our prayers. And that, this is an honest prayer. Lord, Lord, save us. To the panicked disciples, sinking seemed like the likely outcome. But wait a minute. Hadn't Jesus told them, hey, let's go to the other side? Think about that. Jesus already said, here's my plan. Let's go to the other side. When Jesus calls us to do something, he's going to make a way for it to happen. If it's God's will, then God will make the way. Unfortunately, too often it's our will and we want God to make the way. But if God's called you to something, he's going to make it happen. In the midst of this storm, however, when you're in your storms, we can begin to doubt both the plan of God and the goodness of God. And that's exactly where the disciples were with Jesus. They were doubting his plan and they were doubting his goodness. Don't you even care if we drown? They were doubting his plan. They were down in his goodness. Now, I found this was really, really interesting because, okay, they wake Jesus up. The first thing you would think that Jesus would do is deal with the storm, but that's not it. Did you see this? Did you see what happened first? He dealt with his disciples first. They thought the storm was the biggest problem they had. It wasn't. The biggest problem they had was a lack of faith in their Savior, Jesus. That was the bigger problem, and that's the problem that Jesus addresses first. You have little faith, he says. Why are you so afraid? Now, to be honest, this almost sounds like a joke. Can you imagine? (laughs) Jesus stands up. Remember, nothing's changed around them. Circumstances are still the same. Water's sloshing over in the boat. We're getting higher. You know, the edge of the boat's just about at the edge. You know, they're, they're, they're tossing and turning. Wind's blowing. Things, things have not changed other than Jesus' awake. And Jesus goes, why are you afraid? When I read that, it just, it just, it just hits me because... I understand we go through so much of life filled with fear that we don't have to have because Jesus hadn't left. Jesus is still there. He is the cure for our fears. The words of Jesus reveal that reveal that fear and faith reside at opposite ends of the spectrum. 
Faith calms our fears. Trust calms our fears. Fear most often, however, expresses a lack of faith in the goodness of God and his ability to get us through what he's called us to do. Perhaps that's why the Bible is so full, so full of the expression, fear not, do not be afraid. If if you want to do a little word study, take those two phrases. If you've got a computer Bible thing, if not, go to BibleGateway.com. It'll do it for you. Just go in and type in the phrases, fear not, do not fear, and just see how many times those things pop up in Scripture. God's constantly telling us, don't be afraid. There's no need to fear. We're prone to fear. Ever since sin entered into the garden, we're prone to fear. But Jesus calls us to faith, to trust in him regardless of what our circumstances may be at the moment. And having dealt with their faith, then Jesus stands up and he speaks to the wind and the waves. And he simply says, hush, calm down. Well, that's my translation. Quiet, be still here in the NIV. Quiet, be still is what it says in Mark chapter 4, verse 39. Matthew didn't tell us what he says. Mark does. That's why you want to make sure that you're not just zeroing in on one passage. If there's a related passage, go read it. It, it gives you that fullness of the passages. And, and, but when, the, when Jesus speaks, then the winds die down and the waves level off. Now, the wording indicates here that this was not the typical just a passing of a storm. In other words, when Jesus stood up and he said, quiet, be still, hush. When he said it, it immediately went completely calm. Completely calm. In other words, one moment, there's a raging storm, Jesus speaks, and it's calm. Luke and Mark record Jesus asking the disciples again after that event, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Now, wait a second. Hang on. Think about this. He said something very similar early on about their lack of faith in the middle of the storm. He fixes the problem, and then he says virtually the same thing on the other end of it. Now, On the other end, it's easy to receive that, isn't it? On the other end, it's easy to say, okay, now I see why I didn't need to be afraid. But in the middle of it, it's hard. And some of you are in the middle of it right now. And this concept that Jesus is with me and that I can have peace and calm in myself, even in the midst of the raging storm, that seems like a far-fetched idea to you. When you get to the other side, you go, oh, okay, now I see what God was doing. Now I understand. But in the middle of it, it's not so easy. But can I tell you the truth here? Most of us live in the middle of it most of our lives. We get those glimpses where we can look in the rearview mirror and see the hand of God. We get those times, but much of our lives is lived in the middle of a storm. 
question is, where's our faith in the middle of the storm? It's easy to have faith on the other end. Where's our faith in the midst of the storm? Where's our faith when the storm keeps raging? Whether we are in a raging storm or a tranquil sea, what we need to understand is Jesus is still Jesus. That doesn't change. He doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the same Jesus. And he's here with us in the midst of whatever it's going on. And this is what I want you to see more than Jesus calms the storms of life. I want you to see something else. These disciples were soaked to the bone. They were sitting in a boat half filled with water, having just seen Jesus stand up and tell nature to knock it off. And nature responded. The winds and the waves stopped immediately. And the disciples then turn and look at each other and they ask this, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. Now, they had some faith in Jesus to start with. I mean, they'd seen him performing miracles and doing things, but they'd heard him teach. They'd heard him, the authority in his voice, but they'd never seen anything like this. In other words, their faith just got amped up because what they've now been exposed to is more of the reality of who Jesus is. There's a, I've never seen the movie all the way through. Some of you have probably seen it. Maybe your favorite movie. I don't know. Uh, Talladega Nights. You don't have, please don't applaud if you've seen it. You don't embarrass yourself. But there, I, I, the part that I've seen some of the scenes, and one of the scenes is that they're getting ready to have dinner, and uh, the lead character in it, see, I don't even know, the lead character in it, uh, played by Will Ferrell, is praying to, to baby Jesus. Can I tell you that many Christians never get beyond that? We might look at a scene like that and either be appalled or laugh out loud, but most of us. Many of us don't get beyond sweet baby Jesus. And what this this is trying to teach us is not that Jesus calms the storms of every storm in your life, because can I tell you the truth? Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus is not here just to fix all. He's not Mr. Fix-It for all the problems that happen in your life. Some things you live with. Some of you are still experiencing the scars and the pains of divorce. And an ex-husband or an ex-wife who's still a pain in the neck. Some of you are living with addiction every single day of your life. You know where it leads. You know how bad it is. And yet every morning you wake up and you struggle. Some of you have children that your heart is broken over where your children are in life right now. Every day you live with the pain of a child who's living in a way that you you didn't raise them that way. Some of you live with personal pain. 
You wake up every morning. It takes you half an hour to get going because of the pain that's in your body. And you've prayed. And you've asked God to fix all this stuff. And he hadn't fixed it all. This passage does not mean Jesus calms the storms of life. This is to tell us that Jesus is God. Jesus is not just sweet baby Jesus lying in a manger. Jesus is not just a wise rabbi teaching on the streets of Jerusalem. Jesus is not just a miracle worker who went from city to city healing the blind and the lame and the mute. Jesus is not just another prophet the way Muslims consider him to be. What this passage wants us to know and what the disciples got a glimpse of is that this Jesus that we talk about, this Jesus that we sing about, this Jesus is God. This story is not about what Jesus can do for you. It's about who Jesus is. We need to hear that this morning. The disciples needed to hear it because they were thinking about what Jesus could do for them. Matthew, the tax collector, Peter, even Judas, thinking about what Jesus could do for them. As a matter of fact, later we find they're arguing, who's going to get the best seat? Who's going to get the the prime spot in Jesus' cabinet when he finally goes and becomes king over Jerusalem? Who's going to get those spots? And and in the back of their minds, they're having these little debates, and they're talking about each other. Who's the most important? Who's going to get to be the treasurer? Who's going to get to be the vice president? Who's going to get to be the prime minister? Who's going to get to do all this stuff? What Jesus is going to do for us? I mean, Jesus had just healed Peter's mother-in-law. I mean, it just happened. Matter of fact, we had a chance to go to the place that was Peter's mother-in-law's house. She invited us in. We went and they had tea. Oh, come on. No. But if you go back and you read, she was sick, and Jesus went in and he healed her. It's all part of what was taking place. But it's not about what Jesus can do for you. It's about who Jesus is. And this episode that took place on the Sea of Galilee in the midst of this storm told the disciples without equivocation that Jesus is a Lord over creation. That even the wind and the waves have no choice but to obey him. The Apostle Paul would write of Jesus, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This is what the disciples got a glimpse of as Jesus stood up and calmed the sea of Galilee. So don't walk away from this place this morning thinking that Jesus was just a, a mere man who performed a few miracles and told people to be nice to each other. Jesus was and Jesus is 
God. Yes, he came as a baby, born in Bethlehem. He grew up as a Jewish boy in Nazareth. He likely worked with his father and he helped his mother get water from the well and he played with his friends and he he went to synagogue on Saturdays. He was fully human in every way. But that does not negate the fact that he was also fully God. The Jesus that we come together to celebrate is more than just someone who can calm our storms and make our lives easier. The Jesus we celebrate today is worthy of our worship because he is God. He is Lord of all creation. Nothing came into being without him And nothing holds together, including your life, apart from him. And in order for you and for me to have any hope of an eternity with God in heaven, it took a perfect sacrifice. And only Jesus, God and man, could be that perfect sacrifice. He bled and he died on Calvary's cross to pay the price of our sins. John the Baptist said of him as he came in the Judean wilderness, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That is the Jesus we celebrate, the Jesus we sing about, the Jesus we talk about, the Jesus we worship. He is more than just sweet baby Jesus lying in a manger. He is the Lord of creation. Now, when you understand that, there is only one sensible response. And that is to place your faith and your trust in Him today and for all eternity. To believe that Jesus, God's Son, God in the flesh, loves you so much that he came to give his life on Calvary's cross to pay the price for your sins so that your sins could be washed away and be made new. A new person so that you could sing redeemed. I am redeemed. That could be your theme, your song, your heart, your life. But you need to make the choice, you see. The Bible says that all who believed in him, he gave the right to become children of God. And so here's your opportunity this morning. If you've always thought of Jesus as just a good man, a great teacher, a moral figure in history, I want to ask you to trade up. To trade up to a Jesus who could stand up and speak to the wind and the waves and make them cease because he's Lord of creation, because he's God. If you need that Jesus in your life as the anchor, as the center, then today I want to invite you to respond to him. We're going to sing a song in just a few minutes, and as we do, here's what I want you to do. If you need Jesus as a sinner, if you need to, you don't know that you have a home in heaven with God forever, 
or you've been trusting in some half Jesus. And today you realized, hey, that's not the guy I thought I believed in at all. And you've been blown away by him. And today you need to come and say, I I need to receive him as Savior today. And this is your moment. This is your time. Don't let it pass. If you need a church home, a place to belong, a place where the truth is taught and lived. And you want to be a part of that? If God's calling you to be a part of us, then I want to invite you to come. Or if you simply need to come and, and pray and to let God know, you know what? I don't think enough of your son. I put him in way too small of a box. And today I want to let him out and be Jesus. Then this is your time to come. Jesus may not calm every storm in your life. But Jesus will always be with you in the middle of your storm. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It is both true and powerful, and it speaks to our hearts. It compels us to move. Lord, today, having been in your word, we don't have to stand on the Sea of Galilee. We don't have to be in a boat in the middle of a storm to understand this. Your spirit reveals to us what is true. And I pray now, that your spirit will reveal to heart after heart, to mind after mind, the truth of your word. And that you would give them the humility and the courage to respond. There are those who need Jesus, let them respond. Those who need a church home, let them respond. Those who need a new start, a new beginning with the real Jesus, let them respond. Whatever it is you call us to do, Lord. Our answer is yes. We'll move. We'll come. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.